songs of note in the Bible. Both were from the same tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, but they were centuries apart in what they did. One started out humble, but finished rather proud, arrogant, and disobedient. The other one started the opposite way. He was proud, he was arrogant, and somewhat disobedient, but he finished humble. So I want to look at King Saul in the Old Testament, his beginning and his end. And Saul, Paul, but first he was Saul, in the New Testament, and how his beginning was and how his end was. Am I speaking loud enough? Yeah. Okay. Both were chosen for a specific task. And both didn't lobby for the job that they were appointed to by God. In fact, they didn't send in resumes. They didn't even want it. But they were appointed by God. And we'll compare their endings when we finish. So in 1 Corinthians 10.11, Paul writes to the Corinthians who were not a model church. They were a pretty bad lot. And he writes this. He says, now... All these things that happened to them were examples and written for our instruction and admonition. What are these things? Well, they were written so that we would avoid the same mistakes. And in those first ten verses, he writes that God brought Israel out of Egypt with a strong arm. It didn't take God much to get Israel out of Egypt. Ten flags or whatever it was, and then they marched out. So to get Israel out of Egypt was relatively easy for God. But to get Egypt out of Israel, that was a different thing. In fact, God brings people out to bring them into something. He doesn't just take them out from the world and leave them there. He brings them into something. So he brought them out of Egypt, but it was difficult to get them in. In fact, out of the original lot that came out, the older ones, only two entered in to the Promised Land. Only two. The rest died in the wilderness. What were they doing? They were complaining, they were whinging, they were unbelieving, they were tempting God, they indulged in sexual things that they should not because they were in Egypt for 430 years and most of the time they were slaves but being in Egypt they absorbed some of their culture, some of the practices that the Egyptians indulged in and given a chance in the wilderness they did the same so it's said that a wise man learns from the mistakes of others, a foolish man will make the same mistakes himself. Now, in the Old Testament, 
lots of things, many things in the Old Testament are a physical illustration of what is to happen in the New Testament with a spiritual application. Old Testament physical illustration, New Testament spiritual application. Example. In the Old Testament, where did God reside? Initially, in the tabernacle. They packed it up every day whenever they moved and they unpacked, God moved with them. But the tabernacle was the place where God would be met by the people. When they settled in the land, under Solomon, they built a beautiful temple. And at the inauguration of the temple, the presence of God came down and filled the temple. That was the Old Testament. What is the temple or the place of God's dwelling today? The cathedral? Big building? Churches? And in Europe, they've got many cathedrals that are fantastic. Does God dwell in those? In the New Testament, there's spiritual application. So where does God dwell today? He lives in the hearts of living stones. Peter says we are living stones. And then you go to Ephesians, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And as we come together, we form a habitation of God in the Spirit. So the New Testament, it's a spiritual application. Circumcision. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to belong to the, the people of God and join in that covenant, you had to, as a male, you had to be circumcised. What is circumcision in the New Testament? It's no little operation that you have. What do you have? He says, Paul says in Romans, You've got to be circumcised in your heart. It's within. The other was without. What is happening in the New Testament is it's within. And if you have circumcision outwardly, but a contradictory heart inwardly, it's of no value. So he says, it's the heart that has to be circumcised, not your body. So you have principle in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have a something outward that you can visualize. So, when Israel left Egypt after 430 years, God led them into, was supposed to, into the promised land of Canaan. Along the way, they encountered an attack from the Amalekites. They were the first to attack them. They were a marauding group that preyed on the vulnerable, the sick, and the old at the tail end of all those people. And why did they do it? Just for sport, because they could. And so they did that, and God had to more or less answer and help them to defeat them. But God was so annoyed with the Amalekites, He said He would have war with them. From generation to generation, that was in Exodus straight after, and then he reiterated that in Deuteronomy, he said, remember when you settle in the land, 
what Amalek did to you. And I want you to blot out Amalek when you assemble. I want you to get rid of them. And do not forget, remember, Amalek stood for something. Why did God have such a sin against Amalek? There were other tribes there, but, you know, he didn't make a point like that with others. We'll get back to that a bit further on. So, after that 40 years in the wilderness, they entered the land. And they were to remove the inhabitants. Those people that lived there were doing things that displeased God. Their lives and their way of living was contrary to what God wanted. He gave them opportunity to repent. While Israel was in Egypt for 430 years, they should have got their act together. They didn't. They just got worse and worse. So, when Israel came out, God said, all right, remove them. Fight them, get rid of them. Why? So you won't be infected with their abominable practices. At first, Israel were very obedient. They went out and they chased them out. But once they settled and established themselves a bit more, they said, ah, oh, their zeal flagged a bit. And they decided they could live with them. Why, we can tax them. We can subdue them and tax them. We'll make money instead of war. And because they didn't destroy them, they started to copy their practices. And they had an up and down relationship with God. They would sin. God would allow them to be oppressed until they got sick of being oppressed. Then they would repent, cry to God to deliver them. God would send a deliverer or a judge and they would be released from that oppression. The judges were just to name a few, Gideon, Samson, Deborah, and many others. It was a long period where they had uh, been ruled by judges. And in judges, you can understand why they had that sort of a up and down relationship. The main verse there that sticks out is, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And they found that Samuel was a judge and he was the last judge that they would have. Samuel didn't know that and they didn't either. So he was giving old passes used by date. He couldn't get around all the country doing the judging, whatever it entailed. And so Samuel, he elects two of his sons to continue his work. He didn't ask God, didn't inquire, he just said, well, who else? Oh, well, my two sons, they'll do the job. The problem was, his sons were corrupt. Their true character was manifest when they received power or authority. What was within started to manifest without, and they were corrupt. When a person is given authority who lacks the fear of God, don't be surprised if they become corrupt. And they were. The people came to Samuel and said, Hey, your sons are not like you. Your sons, they're biased. 
they're not good like you. They're unethical. And Samuel took note of that. And Samuel remembered something. When he was a young man, young boy, he was given over to the priest Eli to work in the tabernacle, help Eli by his mum, very young. And so he observed Eli, and Eli had two sons. And guess what? They were really corrupt. Samuel's sons weren't very good, but Eli's sons, they were the pits. <clears throat> they were very bad. It's written what they used to do, how they used to do things that were really that bad that God wanted to get rid of them. And the problem was with Eli, he did not rectify the situation with his sons. And God held Eli responsible for not restraining his sons. And God made a promise to Eli because you did not restrain your sons in the things they did. None of your descendants will live any length of time. They won't reach their full potential. They will die young because you forgot or didn't bother restraining your sons. Samuel remembered that and he rectified the situation pretty quick. In Samuel 12, 1 and 2, you, <coughs> sorry, you find there's a verse there that says, my sons are with you. What Samuel did, he uh, assembled the whole assembly, all the tribes. He knew his time had come, the king was coming, a new king was coming, a different um, setup. And he assembled all the tribes and then he stood away from them and he said, have I corrupted any, have I actually acted in any way contrary to what I should have? And my sons are with you. They are not here with me. They are not judges anymore. He sacked them. He put them back amongst the people. And of course the people said, no, you haven't. You've been great. But his sons were demoted. But Israel wanted a king. And God acquiesced to their request. And 1 Samuel 9, you find there that there was a man called Kish. He was a Benjamite and a well-to-do man. And he had a most handsome son. I mean, this son was better looking maybe than the girls in the place in Israel. He was the most handsome man in all of Israel. And on top of that, he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. I mean, he had it all. He was the full, complete package. He was tall, maybe dark and handsome. I mean, what else do you want? He would be just the type of guy you'd want on your coins. He had the full package, outwardly. Inwardly, he had some good points. He was an obedient son. His father had lost some donkeys. He asked Saul to go out and find them. Saul took a servant. He went out, no argument, obedient. He was out three days searching for these donkeys, travelled about a hundred miles, and then finally ran into Samuel. 
just before he ran into him, God spoke to Samuel. And he said, the man I'm sending you, you'll recognize him because he's the tallest in the land. And he's going to be the next king. So when Samuel saw Saul, he told him, he said, you're going to be the next, the next king. You're going to be the first king. You're the one. God has chosen you. And Saul, he was humble. He said, hey, hang on a minute. I'm looking for donkeys, not for a kingdom. I'm just looking for some donkeys. What do you mean I'm going to be the next king? God has chosen you. There's a lot more said, but I'm just going through it. Anyway, Saul then goes home. He meets his uncle, and his uncle said, you, you spoke to Samuel? What did he say? Oh, he said, the donkeys are found. And he didn't boast or anything. I'm going to be the next king. No way. He said nothing. He just went home and did his work with his father. Samuel, in the meantime, called together all the tribes and they were going to officially choose the king. And the way they did it was with lots. I don't know what lots were. Dice? Straws? I don't know. But they picked different tribes. And the tribe of Benjamin was chosen, the family of uh, Kish, and then Saul got the short straw. So they want to bring him up to shout, to, you know, to what they do, hail the king or something, and they couldn't find him. So where, where is this guy? He was that humble, he's stuck amongst the baggage. They had to drag him out so that they could actually do the hail to the king stuff. And so he was finally elected. So he was obedient, he was humble, few other things along the way. He had empathy for people for a while. He was courageous for a while and forgiving for a while. So Saul had all these wonderful advantages and qualities when chosen. And yet, in a few years, he lost everything. He started well but finished poorly. You know, it's good when you have a good start in life and with God. But the way you finish is more important. And he finished poorly. He ended up filled with fear. It didn't take long. He feared the people. He feared what the people thought of him more than he feared what God thought of him. He was jealous. David, when he went out and slew Goliath, coming back, the women went out in the street and they sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that struck Paul. What are they doing attributing ten thousand to a kid when I'm the king and I only get a thousand? He was jealous, and from then on, he eyed David with an evil eye. And he had developed a habit of raging every now and then, even to his own son, throwing spears around, stuff like that. He became deceitful, conniving, and somewhat crazy. And in the end, took his own life, sort of. So I want to examine some points in his life that led to his failure. The first, there's probably a few, but some that are mentioned. 
Um, kind of easily seen. 1 Samuel 13, you find issues with Saul's character. He takes credit for a victory that Jonathan, his son, earned. Jonathan was the one who attacked a garrison of the Philistines. The Philistines were in charge of the area of Israel and they were garrisons in different places. Jonathan went out and attacked the garrison, beat them all up. When Saul heard that, he trumpeted. He blew the trumpet and proclaimed he had won the battle. He took the credit from Jonathan to himself. His ego was starting, what was inside was starting to come out. And it gets worse. In 15, 115, Samuel comes to, I'm condensing a lot of this. Samuel comes to Saul and he says, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. Take note. The Lord says, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him on the way when he came out of Egypt. God took note. That's hundreds of years before. When he came out of Egypt. Now, go and attack Amalek. And destroy everyone and everything. Leave nothing. Even the cats and the dogs. Get rid of the lot. Leave nothing alive. Saul goes and gathers 210,000 men and attacks Amalek. But Saul and the people spared Agag the king of the Amalekites and the best of the animals. When God sees that, he regrets that he made Saul king. And he said, he's out. We're going to remove him. Samuel, he was, he was mentoring Saul as best he could. And he was <coughs> sad that that happened. So he wrestled with that all night. The next morning he went out <coughs> to seek Saul. And he's told he went that away, but he left a monument to himself over here. This is the guy that was so humble he wouldn't even come out to, to the hall of the king. And when he was elected king amongst everyone, he didn't go out to get his head measured for a crown. He went straight back to his father's farm and worked on it. He was humble there. But now, he's setting a monument up to himself. So Saul confronts him. And Sorry, Samuel confronts him. Saul comes out and says, Hail Samuel, I have done exactly what the Lord sent me to do. And Samuel says, Why am I hearing the bleating of sheep and the blowing of oxen if you've done what you were told to do? And Saul says, Oh, that! Oh, yeah, the people! It wasn't me, it was them. The people saved the best of the sheep and oxen to offer them to 
Your God, Samuel. They want an offering for your God. And Samuel shook his head and said, When you were little in your own eyes, you were made king. But now you're erecting monuments. You're claiming uh, victories that you didn't win. When you were little in your own eyes, you were made king. Why didn't you fully obey what God sent you to do, and instead you swooped on the spoil? You found something good amongst it. And Saul says, but I have obeyed. I brought back Agag as a trophy. I brought back Agag. But the people, it was the people, they took the plunder. And it was the sacrifice to your God, Samuel, twice, your God. And Samuel said, sacrifice is good at the right time, but obedience is better all the time. It's good at the right time, but obedience, it's always good. Obedience is better. Saul said, okay, okay, I've sinned. I sinned because I feared the people. It's always their fault. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people more than I feared God. Now, how about you pardon my sin and return with me and worship the Lord? We've got a photo op to do and we're arguing. I admitted it. Yeah, all right, I got it wrong. Samuel said, no, you rejected God's word. He's rejected you from being king. Then Saul saw that Samuel wasn't bending. And Saul said, I have sinned. He admits, he sees that it's serious. Yet, honor me now, please, before the people and return with me to worship your God. Again, that's the third time in this section he refers to Samuel's God, not his own. Honor me, please, before the people. You can see where Saul's heart was. So, Samuel did so. He followed him up. They offered a sacrifice before the people after he admitted that he was really wrong. And then Samuel said, Now bring me Agag, your trophy, the trophy that you took. Bring me Agag. When we brought Agag to him, Samuel's an old man. He didn't kill him, he hacked him. That's how much God disliked the Amalekites. And Samuel hacked him to pieces in front of people. Let me find my other page. Now, I said, why did God have such an issue with Amalek? As we said, in the Old Testament, there are physical uh, things that are shown in the New Testament by the spiritual application. 
So I got this out of Major William Thomas. Has anyone read him? Shows how old I am. Anyway, Major William Thomas, he wrote a few books, very few. One was The Saving Life of Christ. The other one was If I Perish, I Perish. And this is what he, he gave two chapters on Amalek. I just believe this. So who was Amalek that God was so taken up with him? He was the grandson of Esau and the father of the Amalekites. Who was Esau? He was the one who rejected the birthright. He sold his birthright for a plate of soup. That's how much he thought of spiritual things. In Esau, the spirit of Satan was incarnate. What do I need a birthright for? To restore me to dependence upon God? Come on. I'm independent and self-sufficient. I don't buy my meat at the butcher. I go out and hunt for it. And then I run it down and I cut it up and then I eat it. I'm independent. I do what I need to do. I'm a man's man. That's Esau's attitude. And the Bible says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, says God. Why did God hate Esau? Because God can do nothing with a man who will not admit that he needs anything from God. Esau rejected God's means of grace. He repudiated man's need of God's intervention. He despised his birthright and God never forgave him. And this is the basic attitude of sin. It makes God irrelevant to the business of living. God can do nothing for a man eaten up with the spirit of Esau. There was no good thing in Amalek. Saul presumed to find something good in what God had condemned. That was the sin of Saul. He kept the best of what God hated. I'll just compare the two, the other Saul. So Saul made some mistakes, very bad ones. But the other Saul in the New Testament was brought up with quite a pedigree. And he was quite proud of that. He says that in Philippians. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He got a PhD from the school of Gamaliel. He was a Roman citizen born. He had a lot of things going for him. And he was proud of that. Somewhat arrogant. But God had to knock him down off his high horse. And when he was knocked off his high horse, he came to himself. God had a job for him. He chose him. And he was chosen for a special task. Now, Saul's self-assessment, near the end of his life, he talks to David after David showed that he could have got rid of him, but he didn't. And Saul says this, he must have had a lucid moment. This is his assessment on his life. He was a king for over for 40 years. He could have built a legacy. And instead, this is what he says. Indeed, I have played the fool 
and erred exceedingly. This is Paul's assessment. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's good to start well, but it's better to finish well. I'll finish that.